Hi, and welcome to Authorised, a podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, and I'm speaking to Lucy Campbell, terrific new writer on the scene and uh, got a great book called Lowbridge. More details on that coming up in just a moment. It's a whodunit, and it's a beauty. Uh, now, you don't have to make your finances a whodunit. We know who should be doing it. It is CSCG, my podcast partners. They are the people to talk to if you want to set your financial goals and then go about actually achieving them, not just set them, but actually achieve them. And they will help you in all areas, whether it's uh, life insurance, whether it's superannuation, whether it's uh, getting loans, whether it's uh, you know manipulating uh, things around in your financial portfolio to work out how it all fits and how it all works best for you they can help you with that. So give them a call or jump on their website, cscg.com.au, and discover what they're all about. Or if you like, just give them a call, double nine seven four eight triple three. Lucy Campbell, her first novel is called Lowbridge. It's out through Ultimo Press. It's very good. Let's talk to her about it. Congratulations. Uh, your first novel, you must be just delighted with how it's come up. Yeah, it's fantastic. The whole process has been a lot of fun and finally seeing it in the bookshelf is just a dream come true. Yeah. What are your sort of uh, thoughts on the whole process? Because, I mean, I know you've done a lot of writing and editing uh, through your through your career, but when it actually came to, well, uh, you know, he, here's my book and here's how it works, how did you find that? Well, it was all quite a surprise, actually, because I'd written it with never fully intending that it would get out there into the public domain. It was really, I started off just writing for myself because I've always enjoyed writing, but over the years, um, creative fiction sort of dropped off because I've been busy doing other things. So I got back into the habit of writing and was really enjoying it. But a lot of what I was doing was never meant to see the light of day. It was just pop it in the drawer, get back in the habit, 10, 15, however many minutes I had a day to do it. And then as I got deeper into it, I started thinking, oh, maybe I do have something of value here. Um, maybe I can do something with this. But again, because it's such a um, slippery sort of world of publishing, you know, your chances of getting anything out there are pretty slim. I just didn't really pin my hopes on it. It was always more the fun of the process than the end um, ambition of it. But I'm just, I'm just so happy and so pleased that it has, has finally been published. Was the light bulb moment reading the milk carton in the supermarket? Is that is that when it sort of crystallised to you that hang on, and not only have I got something going on in the drawer at home, but there might be something else going on here? Yeah, totally. So I'd been writing little character sketches and set the scenery, sort of setting scenes around things, but I didn't really have an actual story. And then I was down at the local supermarket. And they had milk cartons with pictures of missing people on them. And some of them were more recent disappearances and some of them were from two or three decades ago. And it just struck me that, you know, how how can someone just disappear like that? It just seems so utterly implausible. What would it do to the family and friends that they left behind? And what could the police, you know, hope to find all these years on that might give them a new lead? So that was sort of my starting point for Lowbridge. I came back and that was what I wanted to write about rather than just these nice little sketches that I'd been doing. So, yeah, it was just finding a subject in the most mundane of places, the supermarket. It is an unusual (laughs) place to find it in the milk department, the dairy department of your local Safeway or whatever. Yeah, so my second story will be based on something off a tea bag. (laughs) The the Tetley Booters. I don't want to ruin the book and and, and where it goes and where it takes you, but it's a multi-layered kind of uh, whodunit uh, and 
how did how did that kind of start to layer over for you and you and you find the different uh, sort of parts and and places that you went to with it? I think it started off with my contemporary setting. So it was all it's all about this woman um, in 2018 who moved back to her husband, the country town that her husband was raised in to recover from their own tragedy. Yep. And I started writing that bit first and then I liked the idea of it being, because it was based around the mystery set in the past, I wanted to do, give the teenagers of that time in the 80s, in 1987, voices as well. Um, and once I started doing that, I really liked writing about the teenagers. It took me back to my own experiences in the 80s, none of which were quite as dark as some of the things that happened there, but sort of experiences and observations of the time. And I really liked thinking about all the, um, you know, teenagers have such a sense of drama and camaraderie and parents are the enemy. And I had two teenagers of my own in the house at the time, so it was fun to sort of look at what they were doing and think about what I'd done. And it also, even, even though that's a sort of dark theme going through it, it was also a really um, bright and colourful and vibrant period to be alive. You know, the fashion was great. The, mu- the um, music, makeup, all those things that were going on in the 80s. It was a very loud, brush kind of era. So that also gave me something a little bit of fun to play with while I was also dealing with these other darker topics. That that balance of the uh, the light and dark of the story is, is something that obviously is a really important component of this book. Yeah, very much so. You don't want to. I didn't want to lose everyone in, um, you know, utter misery and everything else. And there are some books. I've heard the term um, trauma porn, which yes. I think is, it's, a, it's such an apt description. And I really don't like it. I like. I don't mind a dark book at all, so long as it's done with love. Like something like um, Shaggy Bane by Douglas Stewart is one of my all-time favourite books. I only read it last year and as soon as I finished it I went straight back to the beginning but there's so much love for it for the characters in it and um, I didn't want it to be something that you walk away from feeling my book to be something that you walk away from feeling terrible about I wanted it to be about hope at the end of it that was very important there's that sort of combination of losing yourself in the book and 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 relating to the characters that that has to work doesn't it yeah well that's exactly right and um, sometimes I feel like Catherine, who's my contemporary, uh, who's in my, the protagonist of my contemporary setting, sometimes she could be, I think in the initial draft, she was sometimes a little bit too brittle and determined and running rough shot over other people. And I needed to sort of rope her in a little bit. I was worried about losing people. Whereas the teenagers were more easy, or easier, I think, to sort of balance. They were fun and lively. Um, and I think pretty relatable, yeah. whereas all the tragedy and trauma that Catherine's going through could make her a little a little harder, a little pricklier. Yeah. Where did Lowbridge come from? What did you base Lowbridge on, the, the sleepy little town with all these secrets and things going on? So it's very loosely based on or inspired by a, a decade that I spent living in Michigan in the southern highlands of New South Wales. Right. And I didn't actually intend it. To be. I had the name of the town and the Shire of Mount Haven and the names of the towns all decided before I started really delving into what they looked like. Um, but as I was writing it, I, I just found myself thinking mainly in the mainly the scenery, really the bush setting came back to me because I loved my time there. It was just beautiful. 
and I just found myself describing those bush tracks and the setting of the town um, almost unconsciously. By the time I got to chapter, I think it's chapter 12, which is a scene by the local pool, it was just, I'd given up trying to think that it was something else. It was purely Michigan <laughs> Pool, which is one of, was one of the loveliest public pools in the country. You talk about, uh, I've seen an interview where you talk about uh, the fact that you love losing yourself in a book. Did you lose yourself in the writing of this book as, as, as much as anything else? Yeah, very much so. And I think that was also what started me, why I enjoyed writing it and why I'm enjoying writing my second one now. Is I want to write the book, the sort of book that I would like to read and so that's very much in the front of my head when I'm when I'm writing. And also when I first started writing Lowbridge, I only had Fridays to write. And it was sort of between school hours. And I thought it would take me several hours to get back into where I'd left off the previous week. So it was a really frustrating way to write. And eventually I did end up throwing in my job, which was a little bit reckless, but I'm so glad I did, just so that I could focus on writing. Because I just was finding it too you know, to a little bit here and a little bit there and it was it was frustrating and it was annoying. I felt like I've got to give this everything or give up entirely. So it was a bit of a bit of a big decision, but a really good one for me. Was it like opening the floodgates for you creatively when you did that? Yes and no. It's such a you uh-huh. know, some days are great and other days are you know, it's a struggle to get through. But I was fairly disciplined in that even when I was struggling to find something to write about or it was just sounding terrible or I was thinking, this is awful, what am I doing? Um, I would still make myself write, even if it was writing background information or I would draw a little map of what I thought the town might look like or I'd research something around one of the subjects that I was looking at. So I always forced myself to do things related to the book, even if I was having trouble writing it, and then eventually when I did get back to it, which might only be a matter of hours or sometimes a matter of days later, I had a good fresh starting point to go from so I didn't let myself get bogged down in it all. That, that research process that you go through is fairly exhaustive. I haven't seen a lot of authors who spend as much time as you clearly did on, on a whole range of things and reading a whole range of different books about different subjects that you might have touched on in this, in this book. Yeah, well, I wanted to get it right. And, you know, subjects like um, grief and abortion, you can't sort of treat them lightly. You have yeah. to treat them with respect and do the research around them, I think, to get it right. So, yeah, that was really important that I, that I did that properly. Um, and you don't, want to, you don't want to resort to cliches about them either. They're important topics and they need to be discussed and they should be done with a good degree of respect. And they're also interesting. I mean, it's amazing. You think you know everything about you know, <laughs> something like abortion, and we talk so much now about laws around consent, um, but they're obviously so confusing. And with abortion, the laws vary from state to state. They've never been set out in stone, and they've never been drafted to really help women. They're, they're so mired in political and social and religious backgrounds that but it's a bit of a minefield. So it was, it was interesting to me as well. Yeah, and, and I guess having set uh, you know, parts of this book in the, in the late 1980s, there was also there's a big difference between what's, what's around now and what was around then. Yeah, so we, I feel like we were very blasé about accepting, you know, what were cultural norms in the 1980s. You'd never get away with it now, which is a great thing. And I think we tend to look back on the 80s sometimes, a bit of 
nostalgia. You know, there's a lot of commentary about, oh, we were out playing until the streetlights came on and <laughs> latchkey kids and parents who were parenting with loving neglect. And it's true, there was all that and that could be great. But also things like domestic violence and sexual assault were so much behind closed doors. The police didn't want a bar of it. The community didn't want to know that was between you and your family. So keep it away from us. So it was good to look back on that too. Is it important for you to get those messages about things like that in in your book but not lose the entertainment value that's obviously so paramount? Oh, totally. It wasn't meant to be a preachy or a lecturing book. It was meant to be about, you know, those were subjects that I could really throw myself into. I could contrast what went on in the 80s between what was going on now, which in some ways hasn't really changed much at all. But it definitely wasn't meant to be done in a preaching manner at all. It was oh, about, no. and it's not. It doesn't. Oh, good. Across, you know. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> but, but but I mean, that is, there is a fine line there, isn't there? But we're between getting your message across and and making a point, uh, and and as you say, preaching it. Yeah. Well, I don't think readers want to be told how to yeah. think. You can you can read along those lines and figure it out for yourself as you go. If, if the author is having to tell you this is right and this is wrong, then. I'm not interested in that book anymore. I'd rather figure it out for myself. You mentioned the the dry spells when you when you write. Uh, is uh, is is writing uh, now become now that it is your full time thing? Uh, do you, do you sit down every day and do bits and pieces uh, just as a like a job? Yeah, I do. So I'm working on the second one, and I've got a really good setup in my little studio with no Wi Fi, which is the best thing. <laughs> that can be very distracting. Yeah. <laughs> So if, and again, if I'm having those moments where I'm a bit stuck, then I will go up to the house and I'll do research or I'll look things up just for a bit of a change of scenery and to break the pace of it. But for the most part, I'm just down here working along on my own little things and doing a lot of reading as well. I like reading. You know, I think you have to keep reading as you're writing, whether it's something that's relevant to your own book or just for the sake of reading something good. Because also when you get stuck, it's so good to pick up something that I love and just um, read one really well-written sentence and think, oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can do this, or I know how this will help me in my own work. How critical are you of your own work? I mean, because often we're our own worst enemy when it comes to these things. Did you, did you agonise over many parts of this book and go, no, I can do that better, I can do that better? Um, pretty much every part. Right. <laughs> even, <laughs> even when I got my um, copies, which is about, I don't know, a month ago or six weeks ago. I feel it was a long time before I could just open it and feel like I knew that everything was going to be okay. So I initially was opening it to random pages and just reading with a sense of dread, thinking, oh, my God, have I missed anything or did I do anything wrong? It's really hard to let go and to accept that it is a finished work. Yeah. And I'm sure it stays, I'm sure it probably stays like that forever. I mean, can you ever look back on something that you did one year or a year ago or a decade ago and think, well, that was perfect. Yeah. None of us do that. Authors get used to a few things. One's rejection and, and the other one's criticism. How have you handled both of those two things? Well, rejection, I think you learn pretty early on because, yep. well, there's that self-doubt, which is a strange thing in itself because you also have to have the confidence to keep going. But there is always this little niggle of self-doubt behind there. But, you know, when you start sending it out, and I went through a really good program called the Australian Writers Mentoring Program, yeah. and I worked with an author called James Bradley, who was 
fantastic. But when I had when I finished and had my list of agents, he sort of went through and said, "No, scrap them, scrap them, scrap them." Um, and why don't you add Martin Shaw? He's a lot more literary than your work is on um, commercial fiction, but he might just be interested. So I sent it to probably four agents, and they don't get back to you. So you don't know whether that's because they you know, gone stuff, to spam yes. <laughs> or, or they've looked at it and they don't like it yeah. or they just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. Um, and so after six weeks, I did a follow-up email and again, I didn't hear anything back. And then Martin got in touch with me saying, Lucy, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to read it this weekend. And then he got back to me a night later saying, I really like this. I'll be in touch with you on Monday. But you've sort of pretty much decided by then that everybody hates it <laughs> and you're never going to get anywhere. And then the same with, um, you know, it's a, it, it was so fantastic to get Martin on my side and then he's the one putting it out to publishers. Um, and it's like a, an auction at a house. You just need to have one person interested and you're away. But I was really lucky in that there were three interested publishers um, and it sort of went from there. But you certainly, I certainly didn't expect I was very hopeful, but every little kind word is a bonus I think, yeah. in writing. The uh, the second book syndrome. How is how is that working for you? It's fine. I don't want to read too much into the second book syndrome because it would probably be the sort of thing that I'd latch onto and <laughs> allow to bring me down. <laughs> but I always had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do next, and yeah. I'm enjoying it. And I'm also at that stage of writing it now, where I wake up in the night and think I need to do this or that, which I actually I really like being that involved in it. When I'm not dreaming about it or not thinking about it every second of the day, then things tend to stagnate, but, yeah, when it's disturbing my sleep, it's a good sign. Did Lowbridge take you uh, in, in directions that you didn't expect it to take you in uh, sort of uh, without you even sort of realising it was happening? Yeah, totally, because I hadn't ever really thought that I would write a mystery. I've always I've enjoyed reading them, but it wasn't really something I was going to do. We have a lot of – my husband reads a lot of gritty crime, sort of Elmer Leonard and – Oh, who's the other one? James Elroy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of the darker ones, and I've never been interested in those. I'm sort of lighter crime, I suppose. So, so I didn't sit down with the intention of writing crime. It was just that that story of the missing people really pulled me in, and I started writing from there. But I'm, I'm glad. It was, it was fun, and it was fun to tease out those sort of threads as I went because I wasn't, I always knew who had done it. And why they did it, but I didn't know how. Um, so it was a bit of a mystery for me to unravel it all as I went. Uh, which obviously the readers will enjoy as they work their way through the uh, through the book. Uh, Lucy, good luck uh, with the with the future. I'm sure there's many, many, many more books coming. And uh, congratulations on on your first one, Lowbridge. It's a great starting point, and uh, off you go. Thanks so much, Kevin, and thanks for having me on to talk about it. So grab a hold of Lowbridge, have a read, and I'm sure you will be waiting uh, with great anticipation for Lucy's second book. But uh, Lowbridge is her first novel and it's out and about now if you uh, want to check it out. Uh, also check out our podcast partners if you're looking to uh, shore up your financial situation and uh, to make sure that's all going in the right direction for you. Uh, you know, Christmas isn't far away and we all need some money. We all need some money for all sorts of things. CSCG can make sure that uh, that you know what your money's doing, uh, how it's behaving, how 
you want it to behave uh, and that you're getting your financial goals kicked for you. Uh, so give them a call. Uh, it's very simple. Just pick that phone up, double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website, cscg.com.au. Plenty more authors that I've spoken to in previous podcast episodes. You can check out where you found this one and plenty more coming in the future. Read a book until then. What a lovely way to spend a, uh, a nice spring summery uh, kind of afternoon, just flipping through the pages or just before you go to bed at night, uh, flipping through a pages to put you off to sleep. Uh, read a book. It's good for you. I'll talk to you next time on Authorised. Authorised.